0: Father's splendor, the Father's visible image, Jesus Christ our God, Prince of Peace, enable us, Lord, to reach the end of this luminous feast in peace. May we celebrate your glorious birth, and the Father who sent you to redeem us, and your spirit, the victor of life, now and forever, age after age, amen. 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 Good morning, Woodland Hills. Welcome to our online gathering today. I'm so excited. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name's Oshita Moore. I get to serve here at Woodland as outreach pastor, and sometimes I get to teach, and I am teaching, y'all, I can't even. I am teaching about my two favorite peacemakers this morning during Advent season, Mary and Elizabeth, and I am just, I'm bursting with excitement. I cannot wait for you to join me in scripture today. I want to tell you first, before we dive into scripture, we're going to spend a lot of time in Luke, so if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, get that ready. But I want to tell you a little bit about something that happened to me in October, so as we all know, things are so different because of this new COVID reality that we are all trying to be incredibly creative in the way that we celebrate each other. And so there's, there's this thing that's happening right now where uh, people are asking for friends of their loved ones to send in little videos or encouraging thoughts on their birthday. And I was puttering around on Facebook like you do these days. And I received a message from my friend Hillary and she said, hey, Jenna, her sister, sister is turning 40 this year, and we are collecting videos and blessings and encouragement from some of her best friends over the course of her life, and she loved you so much when you two spent time in Boston. Would you please send like a a two-minute video about Jenna? And, you know, I'm sure, like, if you are a kind, loving, wonderful person, you would say, yes, absolutely. I am not always kind and loving and wonderful, because in that moment, I really didn't know if I had anything to share about Jenna. Not because Jenna isn't amazing, but she is, but because during my time in Boston, no matter how close we were as friends, I always kind of felt a little bit insecure, like, why is this girl even my friend? Jenna and I had such Parallel lives. We're about the same age. We're both from Texas. Our husbands end up going to grad school in in New England, so we were both, you know, expat Texans dealing with the frosty cold of New England for the first time. We had kids about the same age. Uh, We both kind of had similar, kind of deconstructing, reconstructing stories about our faith. Uh, We actually met up on like a mommy match website that was like match.com, and they put us together because of some of these similarities. And she and I became. Fast, friends. But here's the thing about Jenna. Jenna always felt like she was just one step ahead of me. So like for every stem of broccoli that I celebrated that I served my three kids, she was full on giving them kale salads before that was a (laughs) thing. And for every time I was excited that I finally got my kids out and about, and we spent most of the day running around at the park and being outdoors, this girl would post about how she took her kids on a hike all day long, and none of them threw a temper tantrum for for every time I was excited that we saved up a little bit of money to take our kids on a camping vacation she would share that she had flown her family down to visit her family back in Texas which was a thing I always wanted to do but we couldn't or they would have this amazing vacation and I would think she is just always like one step ahead of me and so that that parallel that 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 competition that was only in me never in Jenna was is, was a first thing that I thought of when I received the invitation to send a blessing to my dear friend. Now, I have stories upon stories of the ways that Jenna has been a good friend to me, but it was interesting that in that moment, those were the things that came up. And as I was sitting there, I was thinking about something that that I have learned from our two peacemakers today is that I had a choice. I had a narrative going on within me about a competition, about a conflict that I had with somebody else. And I could listen to that narrative and just send send, um, Hillary a quick, nope, no thank you, or even worse, leave her unseen. Or I could become a person of the plot twist. In that moment, like I said, I knew that I had to honor our peacemakers that we're going to study today, Elizabeth and Mary. I could live into that arc or I could come up with a completely different way of responding, a way that will lead to a better story of relational wholeness. We are in a series called Illuminate during this Advent season. And it kind of has two meanings. One, during the season of Advent, we light candles and we read readings because we want to remind ourselves of the light of Christ. And so we want to remember that Christ is the one who illuminates all of the good. Christ's light is the one that pushes back all the darkness. But we also, are na- we've also named this sermon series Illuminate because we want to invite the Holy Spirit to illuminate within us any of those areas where we are not fully living into our kingdom values. And over Advent season, we think about four kingdom values that are deeply important to our spiritual formation. We think of hope and peace, joy and love. And so today we are going to ask ourselves this question, how does the story of Emmanuel, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, allow us to live into that kingdom value of peace? What does it look like for us to participate in the peacemaking work of Jesus? And how do we see that in two women, like I said, my favorites, Mary and Elizabeth. But before we do that, will you join me in a word of prayer? Jesus, our Prince of Peace, you bring us peace when we feel out of sorts You bring us peace when we feel disconnected from ourselves and our true identity. You bring us peace in our relationships with each other. You bring us peace in our relationship with you and the Father. You are our Prince of Peace. And not a surface peace, but a deep, lasting, sustaining, flourishing peace. So Jesus, I ask for, for right now, wherever my friends are in their, in their journey of becoming a peacemaker for themselves or for others, that you rush in and that you give them a vision for what peace, that deep, lasting, sustaining peace looks like in their lives. Lord, let the example of Mary and Elizabeth inspire us to be people of a plot twist of peace, and let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, Lord. Amen. Now, how many of you, as I was describing my interaction, uh, the way I was thinking about my relationship with Jenna, how many of you guys kind of squirmed a little bit? Like maybe you have that same sort of kind of internal dialogue that goes on when you encounter somebody who just maybe rubs you the wrong way or who you have already decided is maybe your enemy or that you don't agree with for whatever reason, maybe their personality, maybe their life choices. Is there like a coworker that you have to go in to work with and see and they're not wearing a mask and that makes you so frustrated or they're wearing a mask and that makes you so frustrated and so you start to have a story within yourself about who they are and what they believe? Are you somebody that, that feels like you're always struggling and striving and hustling and strategizing on how to be successful and then there's somebody that just comes and breezes right past and they seem to get everything you've always wanted? Is there maybe a dear friend who you've drifted away from and now you look back over the whole of your relationship and you remember only the bad and none of the good? I think in this world we're encouraged to embrace these kind of conflict stories, this kind of drama, and we're also encouraged to create the arbitrary category of us and them. And this is what I wrestled with as I was sitting there alone, thinking about what am I going to say about Jenna? What can I honestly say in this moment that doesn't feel like me being fake? What do I have two minutes of good to share Had I not spent so much time studying Mary and Elizabeth, had they not been my favorite ones to come back to every Advent, after every Advent. Like I said last week, y'all, Advent is my favorite. If these two women were not models for me in scripture, then I probably would not have... Turned to a good story or thought of anything good to say about Jenna. But what I did end up doing was thinking, what is a peacemaking story within myself that I have to deal with so that I can speak a blessing over Jenna? And I came up with like three minutes worth of stuff. I always go long. I promise I won't do that today. <laughs> because of Mary and Elizabeth's example, and the work of the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what it truly means to look like Jesus, our Prince of Peace, this Advent season we too can become people of a plot twist of peace. Now, before we get into our text, we're going to spend a lot of time in the story um, that we find in Luke. Because one of the things I love most about Advent is that it's so rooted in the story of Jesus. So every time we light a candle, we spend some time reading a little bit about the story leading up to Jesus' birth. No time no other time in the church calendar does this like literary, like fiction-loving person comes out of me more, even though this is not a fictional story, but like the, the storyteller in me comes comes out more um, when we study Advent because it's so rooted in stories. So because we're going to be spending time in the stories, I want us to look at two literary devices that are going to show up in this story that help us understand what it means to become people of a plot twist. And you'll understand a little bit more what I mean by that as we get into the story. Now, first, I want us to understand the idea of a plot twist. So many of us, I think we already get it, but a plot twist is a radical change in the expected direction or outcome of the plot. So, like, think, should I ruin it for you guys? It's it's been 20 years. I think I'm going to ruin it for you. The sixth sense, like he sees dead people, will... Bruce Willis has been dead the whole time. And that's a plot twist that we find out at the end. And once we find that out at the end, everything about the movie starts to make sense to us because of that one little piece of information. Um, plot twists are common practice used in narration to kind of help keep the interest of the, of the audience. And it's usually like a big surprise revelation. So I want you to take note of the idea of a plot twist. The other thing I wanted to take note of is the idea of foreshadowing. And that is basically little bits and pieces of information that we see throughout the story that then becomes really relevant towards the end. And so we see, we see something and, and we think, okay, that, 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 that's weird. Why did that happen? Let me, let me remember that. And, and it's actually pointing to something that's going to happen in the end. I want us to think about, okay, so we think about plot twists and now we're understanding the literary device of foreshadowing. There's a type of plot twist that we see in Mary and Elizabeth's story that is really important for us to understand before we dive into it. So one type of plot twist is called anirisis. And and anirisis is a, a moment in the story when a character or the audience makes a critical discovery. The critical discovery could be about the nature of reality, or the character's true identity, or the true identity of another character in which the character and relationship or ha- has a radical change that then affects the plot. So an example of anorisis that we already see in scripture is when, um, when Mary goes to the tomb and she is prepared to care for the body of Jesus. And she gets to the tomb and the, and the, and the stone is rolled away and his body is not there and she's looking around and she's starting to, she's starting to become afraid and anxious and deeply sad and because her Lord is not there and she looks and she sees who she thinks is the gardener and she begins to plead to the gardener like, where have you taken him? I will go, ta- I will go get him and then the gardener, who is Jesus, says her name. That is an example of an anorisis. It's an example of some piece of information or some revelation that completely changes the course of the story because what happens now? Mary is no longer caring for the body of Jesus. She goes back to proclaim this good news to the disciples. Some, a classic example of anoresis is found in Oedipus Rex. So all through Oedipus Rex, um, he has received a, an oracle that says that he is going to uh, marry his mother and kill his father. And so the whole of the play, he is trying so hard to not live into that, that, that uh, oracle, that prophecy. And through a course of events, he actually ends up killing his father and marrying his mother. That's a huge plot twist because through the whole of it, we're, we're watching him do everything he can to prevent that from happening, and yet it still happens. Plot twist by way of revelation. He could not get away from this prophecy. A modern example outside of the sixth sense of anorises, um is a YA book that turned into a movie that uh, my daughter and I watched together and read together. It's been out for a little while, so I'm going to spoil it for you. I'm sorry if you're in the middle of reading it. I, I guess pluck your ears for the next Two minutes. So in, a, in everything, everything, it's a it's a book about a young woman named Maddie. And Maddie starts at the beginning of this, the book. You find out that Maddie has always been in her home. She has been she has been told, and she has had evidence from doctors that says that she has a rare autoimmune disease, and that she cannot leave her home. And her home is a very sterile environment. She her everything is clean. She has to walk when her when people come into her home, they have to take her their clothes off and wash their clothes and change their clothes. They have to wash their hands. They have to leave their shoes at the door. They come in. They wash their hands often while they're around her. It feels like our current reality. And so her whole life is this very sterile, very protective life. And her mother, who is a doctor, whom she, whom she trusts implicitly, who is the only other person outside of her, like her nanny slash nurse that she spends time with, has reinforced that, yes, you're sick. Like, you had a horrible experience when you were a baby, and, and I was told that it's best for you to stay home. And And so her whole life, until she's 17, she believes that she is sick. Well she starts, she meets her neighbor, a next-door neighbor, a boy moves in, and they start to interact with each other, um, through their windows. They start to, they start to leave little messages for each other, and then they start to text each other, and eventually the nanny slash nurse invites the boy in. He washes his clothes, he changes clothes, he washes his hands, he takes his shoes off, he gets hosed down by, in this, like, like, sterile like kind of chamber and he, he goes and he spends time with her and they fall in love come on y'all it's a YA book you knew they were going to fall in love and so she now wants to spend time with him and so they, she, she decides to run away to Hawaii with him and while she's in Hawaii she has this amazing time but she gets sick and it's just a simple bug but she passes out and she has to be rushed to the emergency room she gets cared for by doctors in Hawaii her mom gets her brings her back and then later on, she gets an email from the doctor that says, you know, I see in your charts uh, that your your mother said that you have this autoimmune disease. But when I looked at your blood work and when I cared for you, I saw no evidence that you have this disease. Tell me, where did you, who did you see? And point me to the doctors who told you this, because from where I'm looking, from where I'm standing, you are a healthy 17 18 year old woman, you have a very, very weakened immune system as if you, you have the immune system as if you were a baby, which is why you reacted so terribly to this virus, but I don't think you have this disease. And what we find out, the inner assist, the plot twist moment, is that. The terrible thing that happened to the little girl was not, never happened to the little girl it happened to the mother when, when, when Maddie was a baby her, her father and her brother were killed in a car accident and what the mother did was she was so heartbroken, so traumatized she did not want to lose any, anyone else in her family, she completely shut her, everybody down and she brought her baby in and she created this very sterile protective environment and she reinforced the story that Maddie was sick So really, Maddie wasn't the sick one. It was her mother. That twist ending uh, was also there. Was also foreshadowing in in uh, in uh, everything, everything. Because you start to see little things about Maddie and about the way she interacts with other people who say they who who actually have the disease. You start to see kind of like things in the in the mom or the way the mom talks, and you start to wonder: Is this really true? Is she really sick? So now that we kind of understand how these two literary devices work together, thank you for coming to Oshida's literary moment, we are now going to dive into our text and we're going to look for anoresis, we're going to look for a potential plot twist, and we're going to look for foreshadowing. But before we do that, before we get into the, the encounter between Mary and Elizabeth, you need some backstory about both of these women. So first we're going to start in Luke 1, 5-15, and I'm going to read the passage for us. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for burning incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. Keep that in your mind. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Okay, so a few things that you need to know about Elizabeth. Okay, so Elizabeth, she's roughly about 60 years old when she becomes pregnant with John. She is from the priestly line of Aaron, who was the elder brother of Moses. She was, a, she was from a family committed to Yahweh. She was a descendant from a line of people who actually crossed the Red Sea and entered the promised land. What a legacy she herself was committed to Yahweh and she still was childless which brings me a little bit of comfort as a perfectionist to be honest who's always trying to get things right and it's a good reminder that sometimes things just don't go our way and it's not because of anything we did or didn't do And it's important for us to understand what being childless meant for a woman of Elizabeth's stature and her age. You see, being childless in in this time would signal to your community that you have somehow been forgotten by God or you have angered God. At best, it could, be, it could be viewed as God holding back a blessing from you, or at worst, it could be viewed as God punishing you, which makes me think of so many of us who are kind of in some deconstructing or in- reconstructing phase in our faith, and the fruit that, that is being produced of that season doesn't look like the fruit that our faith community acknowledges. Because even still, Elizabeth was still a woman who was faithful in the eyes of God, and yet she was she was not bearing the acceptable fruit. And yet, this passage clearly says that even though Elizabeth uh, says that Elizabeth was righteous in the sight of God, doing everything she can to preserve her right standing, her right relationship with God and her community. Socially, for a woman of Elizabeth's age, and especially a woman who comes from such a line that had such a legacy, there's such an expectation on her to be favored by God. Socially, for Elizabeth, barrenness presented um, something like a social death. So, like, imagine Elizabeth, like the woman who goes to all the baby showers and who goes and holds all the babies and brings the casseroles and maybe she cares for children and yet she is unable to have children. She is a leader in her community and she's not able to live, to to signal to her community that she can truly be a leader because. There's a stigma that she's barren, so somehow maybe she's missed out on God's blessing. I also want to highlight her husband, Zechariah, because they're, they're somewhat of a team that really supported each other. He, too, was from a priestly line, and he carried the legacy of serving God by availing himself to serve as a priest. He was a faithful man to his covenant of marriage because it was customary for husbands to either divorce a barren wife or take on a surrogate to produce them an heir. Think Hagar and Sarah and Abraham. Yet, Zechariah stayed faithful to Elizabeth, and I wonder if part of it was he loved her too much to let her deal with that social shame of barrenness alone. Some scholars actually believe that Zechariah died to protect Elizabeth and John during Herod's massacre of the innocents when all males under the age of two were killed. And in an attempt to to get information out of him, there's one scholar that says that he refused to tell them where Elizabeth and John were and so he was killed, which shows that he was also a man willing to live out the kingdom value of self-sacrificial love. Okay, so now hold Elizabeth and Zechariah in your mind. Let's take a look at Mary. So we're going to be in John 1, uh, 39 through 45, and then 26 through 38. So six months after Elizabeth knew she would become a mother, Gabriel was sent from God to Nazareth. Nazareth was a town in the, county of, in the country of Galilee. He went to a woman who had never had a man. Her name was Mary. She was promised in marriage to a man named Joseph. Joseph was from the family of David. The angel came to her and said, you are honored very much. You are a favored woman. The Lord is with you. You are chosen from among many women. When she saw the angel, she was troubled at his words. She thought about what had been said And the angel said to her, Mary, do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. See, you are to become a mother and have a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the place where his early father David sat. He will be king over the family of Jacob forever, and his nation will have no end. Keep that in your mind. His nation will have no end. Mary said to the angel, how will this happen? I have never had a man. And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will cover you. The Holy Child will give, you birth, will give birth. The Holy Child you give birth to will be called the Son of God. See, your cousin Elizabeth, as old as she is, is going to give birth to a child. She was not able to have children before, but now she is in her sixth month. For God can do all things. Then Mary said, I am willing to be used of the Lord. Let it happen to me as you have said. Then the angel went away from her. Okay, so now Mary. Mary was a teenager, roughly, around, uh, roughly about 12 to 14. She was probably in the first stage of her betrothal to Joseph, who was a descendant of King David. Mary being committed to Joseph, but pregnant would have brought a lot of shame and her own version of social death. Can you imagine having to explain to the people that no, you haven't violated your marriage covenant, but you have been so faithful to God that he entrusted you to carry his son and birth to Messiah? Um, like super awkward. They were a young couple at the beginning of their lives and they receive this news. Now, the reason why I wanted to tell these two stories is because when ancient listeners would hear this story, when ancient readers would come upon this story, it would automatically connect them to things that they have already read in scripture. Because these two stories, of these two women have all the elements of what's called the birth of a hero narrative in ancient literature. So when ancient readers would come to these texts it was heavy with significance for them because Mary and Elizabeth were posed to function traditionally as characters at odds with each other so think of it this way just like we have our own types of literature like romance or sci-fi or fantasy or mystery the ancients had their own types of literature now think of it this way with me if you and i open up a mystery novel and we're prepared for what for the for the common beats of a mystery novel we there's a crime and a procedure and characters and a cunning detective. And then out of nowhere, an alien invasion happens. We find out that the murder was actually caused by these aliens who are bringing on a post-apocalyptic world. And then there's some sort of lab that we all have to go into to become now aliens or be killed by the aliens. That that story has officially switched from a mystery novel to a sci-fi novel because the beats had changed. When an ancient reader would come to this, they were prepared for the certain type of beats. Now, there are three kind of common narratives in ancient literature just so that we can understand kind of how they... they, they, how they uh, categorize these different stories. The first is like a champion story. So think of David defeats Goliath. And then there's apocalyptic writing. So think of like strange symbolisms that represent prof- prophetic messages, like the Book of Daniel. And then there's this one, the birth of a hero story. So think of Jacob and Esau, or Isaac and Ishmael. Now, what did both? What do all four of these men have in common? They both had mothers. One of them was dealing with infertility in some way. She shape, or form. And both of these men end up being at odds with each other. So the ancient readers, when they hear about Elizabeth and Mary, what are they prepared for? These two women and their children to be at odds with each other. They basically were like, oh, what's going to go down? And the stakes were even higher because now we brought in the, the concept, the idea of the Messiah. So this scenario, as we're watching it, we're prepared, as ancient readers are watching it, they're prepared for things to to happen a certain way. But nobody expected the plot twist of Jesus. Jesus, who so radiantly reflected peace and love. Jesus, whose very presence was shalom in utero, Influenced Elizabeth to and John to, as they came in contact with him, to not only be joyful, but people of peace and radical hospitality. See, Elizabeth did not address Mary as Mary came to visit her with anxiety or envy. We're gonna see that Elizabeth addressed and received Mary in a different way. So now let's continue on in our text. Luke 39 through 45. So at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the the hill country of Judea, where she encountered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and in a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached, the, reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord will fulfill his promises to her. Y'all, y'all, this is huge. Mary... From her stature and her situation and her age, full of fear and anxiety, rushes to her cousin. Maybe even prepared for some sort of shining or rejection, but she doesn't receive that. Elizabeth responds with radical hospitality, radical love, and she starts to speak this blessing and story over Mary that is so different than what any of the readers coming to this text would have expected. Plot twist, she chose blessing. She chose peace. She chose to change the narrative of the story in that moment. How often do we give in to the narratives that we already have about somebody and then we start, it's almost self-fulfilling prophecy, we have a narrative of conflict, we engage with that person and all of a sudden the conflict just starts rolling. What if we're the ones that when we recognize that we have a narrative of conflict, we're the ones that speak peace first. That we're the ones that speak blessing first. That we're the ones that begin to de-escalate that conflict by escalating the goodness and belovedness of the person that we are interacting with. You see, because of Jesus, our Prince of Peace, our peace-making King, Elizabeth was inspired to speak blessing over Mary, and this does something even better than, than, than uh, connection and solidarity with her with her cousin, who's also pregnant in this miraculous way. This unleashes something in Mary. Now. Right now, my husband is preaching about the Magnificat, which is the song that Mary sings. And I'm so jealous because all I want to do is like pull this chair here and sit down and go line by line with you guys about the Magnificat. Because what Elizabeth, what her blessing unleashes and inspires in Mary is a prayer and a song and a magnification of the character of God, the mission of God, and the kingdom of God that she proclaims that has now become an indelible and an important part of our spiritual formation. This is a precious song to our Catholic brothers and sisters. And so I want to share with you this thought from Sister Sir Elizabeth Johnson, a Roman Catholic theologian, she says of the Magnificat which is the song that Mary sings, the Magnificat is a revolutionary song of salvation whose political, economic and social dimensions cannot be blunted. People in need in every society hear a blessing in this canticle. The battered woman, the single parent without resources, those without food on the table or without even a table, the homeless family, the young abandoned to their own devices, the old who are discarded, all are encompassed in the hope Mary proclaims. The truth and the Magnificat is such good news to people living under oppressive regimes that it was banned from being sung or posted in India under British rule. In the 1980s, it was banned in Guatemala. Um, The mothers of Plaza de Mayo, um, whose children all disappeared during the Dirty War, they were not allowed to sing or post the Magnificat anywhere. There is something about the incoming kingdom of God and the, the shalom of the kingdom of God, the rightness, the justice, the making things new and whole and beautiful again that is so offensive to regimes of this world that, that strive and live on under oppression that they, didn't, they don't even want Mary's song that reveals this kingdom to them to be spoken in the mouths of their citizens. My favorite thought from Bonhoeffer before we read Mary's Magnificat is that the song of Mary is the oldest Advent hymn. It is at once the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary Advent hymn ever sung. This is not the gentle, tender, dreamy Mary whom you sometimes see in paintings or that we sometimes, this is Oshita, not Bonhoeffer, that we sometimes say, Mary, did you know? She knew, y'all. She knew back to Bonhoeffer. This song has none of the sweet, nostalgic, or even playful tones of some of our Christmas carols. It is instead a hard, strong, inexorable song about the power of God and the powerlessness of humankind. So y'all want to know what Mary said? <laughs> okay, it's so good, and I, I just want to go line by line, but we're going to go there. Okay, so Mary's Magnificat, and it'll be on the screen in front of you. So Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For God has looked with favor on the lowliness of the Almighty's servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is God's name. God's mercy is for those who fear God from generation to generation. God has shown strength with God's arm. God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. God has helped servant Israel in remembrance of God's mercy according to the promise God made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Mary proclaimed the kingdom of God had come. She reveals the true character of God and she models us a submission to the way of the Lord. And part of it is because of what Elizabeth spoke first. that That Elizabeth going first and offering a blessing inspired Mary to sing this blessing. And I just wonder, what good words can we say to others that would inspire good words to flow out of them? So this Advent... I want to encourage us to be like Mary and Elizabeth, people of the plot twist. Now, how do we do that practically? The first thing that we see in Mary Elizabeth's story is that peacemaking is a choice we make every day, even when it seems like everything is falling apart. I do not think the Lord would have entrusted John the Baptist, the man who would proclaim the Messiah and prepare people's hearts for him, to Elizabeth unless she was a woman who was faithful even in hard times. I think the Lord knew that even in her pain, even as she struggled with stories about her worth and her identity as related to her barrenness, she would not give up on God and she would honor him with her actions. If we are going to be people of the plot twist, then we need to be people that make the decision first. I also want to go back to this foreshadowing because I'm curious about the five months Elizabeth spent in seclusion. Did y'all catch that? Look, I have been deep in book writing and processing um, some hard trauma around race. And several times since George Floyd's death, I've had to get away from my everyday life, from the people who need me and expect things from me, to do the hard internal work with the Lord about my core identity and my calling. Choosing to be a peacemaker in conversations about race has been one of the hardest things the Lord has asked me to do. But in order to do it, I need a time of seclusion for God to heal some of that trauma. And some of those narratives that I believe about myself as a black woman in this current racially charged moment. And I wonder if this is the same for Elizabeth. In order to raise her son to find his place in the Jesus story, she had to get alone with God and let him heal some of those narratives. I believe that she believed about herself as a barren woman and to give her the confidence to continue choosing peacemaking. Maybe that's what you need to do in order to choose peace. Do you need to carve out times of seclusion with the Lord to interrogate those narratives you believe about yourself or him that get in the way of your peacemaking? And the last thing is... Practical, radic- practice radical hospitality in words and if safe and possible in deeds. Elizabeth opened her arms to Mary and I wonder if Mary went to her because she knew Elizabeth to be a woman who would make space. Maybe even in her fears she took that journey to Elizabeth's house because she knew that Elizabeth was a woman of hospitality who would open her home for her to, for months. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for three months, having her own, I'm sure, version of a seclusion with the Lord. Sometimes we have the words of life for someone, and we can set them free to find peace and become peacemakers if we'd only say them. And then the last thing I want to highlight before we close is our choice to make peace can have a generational impact. When Mary visits Elizabeth, Elizabeth says, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? This kind of humble posture that Elizabeth took, partly because of her previous faithfulness and study of the Lord, and partly because of the the new and filling of the Holy Spirit that was promised to her, was one that she passed on to her son John. She taught him this way of humility and peace, so much so that when Jesus comes to be baptized by John, John says, who am I to be baptized by you? Like, you should be baptizing me. And all through John's ministry, he balanced his prophetic gift and call with humility by telling people, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you in Holy Spirit and with fire. And that's our calling, peacemakers. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire and illuminate the darkness around us. So as we close, I have some questions for you in a spiritual practice. What broken stories are you living into today? And how can you tell a better one? What stories do you tell yourself about your past or your identity? Let God sing a new song over that. What stories are you telling your community, and and what conflicts are you perpetuating by believing negative narratives about your enemies? We wrestle not against flesh and blood kingdom people. Each of us are made in God's image. Confess, listen, and let the Prince of Peace sing shalom over you and your relationships. And how can you be a part of another person's story of redemption? To help us kind of process these questions and settle ourselves into the story and picture ourselves being the peacemakers that God wants us to be, picture our own plot twist of peace, we are going to engage in a spiritual practice called Visio Divina. It's similar to Lectio Divina, which I've led us through before, but Visio Divina is prayerfully spending time gazing at an image and inviting God to speak to you through it. So I have three images of Mary and Elizabeth, and as you gaze on these images, um, I will offer you some questions to to help you along on your reflection. But before we do that, I want you to just take a deep breath and get comfortable where you are. Be aware of your body. And I want you to um, ask the Lord, I'm just going to be quiet for a second, to just um, invite the Lord to be with you in this moment. The Lord has been with us through this whole sermon, I hope. I hope, Lord. But we're going to invite the Lord through this particular practice. All right. So join me, friends, in practicing Visio Divina. So the first picture you're going to see on the screen is called Mary and Elizabeth. It's from Lauren Wright Pittman. I want you to think about the babies in the womb, the two sons, the ways that they're going to proclaim the kingdom of God. And I want you to ask the Lord, what stories, what good words do you want to birth in me that will bless the world? second picture is Jump for Joy by Mary and Elizabeth. As you look at this picture, where would you place yourself? I want you to think about a time where you were incandescently happy, where the joy of the Lord was truly your strength. I want you to take yourself there. I want you to offer gratitude to God for that moment. Maybe write that down as things feel hard in the upcoming weeks come back to that story, that moment. The third picture is Mary and Elizabeth. I have this one up in my home. I want you to look at this picture and I want you to imagine what does it look like for you to be a part of God's story of peacemaking what does it look like for you to be brilliant and illuminate right where you are I want you to ask the Lord who do you need to come alongside you to shine their light so that you might shine a little bit brighter Last thing I want you to think about as you're looking at Mary and Elizabeth, I want you to think about the legacies that these women come from and that they have. Who has been a spiritual parent to you that have proclaimed belovedness, sonship, daughtership over you? It could be your actual parent or a spiritual parent. Reflect on that. we get to be a part of the peacemaking legacy of God. So now do you guys know why I love Mary and Elizabeth so much? They embodied the love and confidence of a kingdom person and the world was forever changed because they submitted to the Prince of Peace and told a better story. The kingdom of God kissed the world in a profound way the day that Mary and Elizabeth encountered each other, and the kingdom of God kisses the world in a profound way when we choose to be peacemakers. We exist, Woodland exists, to be the kingdom of God here in our community and wherever you are watching, you as a peacemaker, you get to reflect the kingdom of God right where you are. So, be a person of the plot twist. Now, if the sermon brought up anything in you that you want to process a little bit more, you have some more questions about, there's a couple of places because we are learning to love together. We're a community of eggheads who, lear- who love to, to learn and talk about things with each other. So there are a couple places where you can kind of go deeper. The first is gathering groups and the times for those are on the website. So go over there and check it out and plan to join one this week. And then the other is the MuseCast, which airs on Tuesdays at 4 p.m. Um, you're going to get to see Shauna, um, Boren and Dan Kent and myself, and we're going to go deeper into maybe some of the things I didn't get to talk about because, y'all, I have so many words about this. Um, but that's a place for you to come to. And then finally, friends. Every time we encounter the Lord, he illuminates something in us that we need to process a little bit more. And if that's the case for you, there are prayer ministers available right after the service, um, and they would love to pray over you, to be maybe the first one to speak a blessing and good word over you. So avail yourself to our prayer time. So go in peace, friends, to love and serve the Lord, and to be a person of the plot twist of peace right where you are. Amen.